The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Rack and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is our newscast for episode 259. And Alex, we are in February. This is the week of February 5th, 2024. We've already finished a month. It's crazy how fast the year is going. Um, you know, I, it was a nice, you know, easy lead in. And then all of a sudden January was gone. Yeah, it's, uh, and, and, you know, we had this unbelievable weather this last week and then unbelievably quick turn into uh, six inches of snow. Yeah. It felt like spring for a minute and now we're back to winter. Yeah. But it's a pretty, honestly, like it's a pretty warm snow, which, which means you get that big fluffy thick stuff. That's not so much fun to shovel, but it's not so bad to be outside in it. Yeah. And you know, it'll probably be gone tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, well, good stuff. Jumping into some housekeeping. Um, reminder, we have a Slack channel. This is the place where you can join a 2,500 of your closest friends out in the Colorado Equal Security Slack. In order to join us, go to colorado-security.com and click the Slack button. While you're there, there's scroll to the bottom and you'll, you'll find a mailing list um, square. You can just join our mailing list and get the show notes into your inbox each week. We'll give you the show notes and occasionally some other news. I think you'll get some other news here this week as well. Yeah. Um, it would be great also if you subscribe to the podcast on whatever you use to listen to podcasts and rate us, let people know how good the podcast is so we can you know, move up those ratings charts. I'm sure one of these days we'll hit the top. Um, also tell a friend, let them know uh, about Colorado Equal Security, the podcast and all the things that we're doing. Uh, I think finally, if you would like to support us financially, we do have a, a Patreon campaign that's been ongoing for a long time now. Uh, we have some folks that help us cover the cost of the podcast, hosting, and other things like that. And uh, speaking of our Patreon campaign, I believe we actually have a new patron. Yeah, a new patron to call out this week, Travis Heisch uh, from IBM Security. Travis and I have known him for, for a long time. He was a sales guy at Ping, and he's over at IBM Security now. He's joined as a, as a new supporter of the podcast. You know, just a big appreciation for Travis and the other folks who, who support us. You know, it's, you know, the podcast doesn't cost a ton of money to run, but it sure is nice to know that there's folks in the community who are willing to support us and, and, uh, and keep it, keep it going. Uh, and occasionally, you know, occasionally we're able to do something fun like the, the summer um, picnics with, with that money as well. So big thanks to Travis and the rest of our patrons. You know, one of the other things that we've been trying to do lately, Rob, is organize some volunteer events. Um, it is fun, but also meaningful and worthwhile and uh, helpful to those in the community. And we have one of those coming up on the 25th. Yeah, I'm super excited. Big thanks to Ben Fellows and Chris Abbey who have taken the the lead on this. The Colorado gives Colorado Equal Security gives back has our what's our our fourth one I think fourth I think thing. this is our fourth yeah. one. Yeah, we yeah. did the yeah. Um, anyway, this is a, a, an opportunity to go do a volunteer at a homeless shelter uh, through Volunteers of America. It's going to be on the 25th of this month. In the show notes is a link to a form to fill out. Uh, here's the news: the we can only bring 20 people to this event. You know, it's it, you know they they can they can't have 100 people running into their into their shelter. So uh, we would love it if you would join. Um, please sign up uh, here as soon as you can, so we have a good feel for who's going to be there. Uh, I'm excited to, to to see the outcome here. Yeah, uh, looking forward to it. I think it'll be a great event. Um, really happy that we're continuing to give back to the community. All right, what do we got for our first story? Uh, Rob, this is a a bit of a sad story. Um, this is about a Colorado pastor who was um, accused of uh, scheming to defraud some folks with a, a multi-million dollar uh, crypto scheme. Oh, Alex, this isn't Pastor Eli Rigaldo, is it? 
I think that sounds right. I think oh, that. Oh, oh my gosh, Alex, this this might be my retirement money we're talking about right now. I should have read this article before we started. Uh, well, Rob, uh, now you're going to hear about it, and I'm sorry to have to break it to you here, but uh, Pastor Eli, you know, he organized this uh, this crypto fund as well as a uh, crypto exchange, and you might say, well, th this guy m must be pretty technical to uh, to start his own cryptocurrency and his own crypto exchange, and I think the real answer is no, no, he really wasn't. Um, <laughs> And uh, while he felt like this was a good thing, I think it was a bit ill-conceived. And uh, yeah, it turned out that he ended up using some of the money for personal purposes um, and pretty much the rest of it was lost. But it, it definitely seemed like a good thing to him as he bought his Range Rover, luxury handbags, jewelry, boat rentals, and snowmobile adventures, according to this article here. So, so I mean, obviously there's victims here. The people who trusted him um, are, are victims. I have like no sympathy for this this guy who who says, you know, God told him to start a cryptocurrency without knowing what he was doing. And when he got the money in the cryptocurrency, he went and bought a bunch of stuff to have fun versus figuring out how to run a cryptocurrency. So, like I said, a lot of not a lot of sympathy for for this pastor, but I do have quite a bit of sympathy for those folks who um, who believed him and uh, and and probably you know put millions of dollars into this into this uh, fraudulent investment. Yeah, it, it's a sad thing, and I think we all know that. Um, cryptocurrency is, is a gamble, even if it is done correctly, right? Like, uh, you know, you're not necessarily going to make money off of cryptocurrency, even if it's uh, legitimate. So um, when it's illegitimate, yeah, it makes it even worse. Well, if, if anyone comes to you and says that they have some really cheap um, shares in the Kingdom Wealth Exchange for the, in, is it INDX, the index coin, um, you yeah. should probably pass on that. This is not an opportunity that you want to jump on. I do not believe. Of course, yeah. you know, uh, the past is no indication of future results. I don't know what I'm talking about with investments. Don't listen to me. Yeah. We are not financial advisors. This is not <laughs> legal advice. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. All right. Uh, enough with, with that story. Uh, you know, I know, like, was it two months ago? We're like, man, this show turns into the, the DIA podcast way too much. But like this is a this is a really interesting story from my perspective. So we, we we threw this one in here, and as you know, as a couple of folks who travel quite a bit through through the airport, um, man, the they they they've actually the day has come when the new security is opening, and we're not going to be going through the the north security anymore as of this week. Yeah, um, I believe if you're listening to this podcast, uh, north security should be closed by now, and the new west security gates, uh, which are up a level on the west. Uh, northwest corner of the the airport uh, are now open, and uh, this is the one of the big renovations that's been happening at DIA. Uh, there are now, I believe, seventeen lanes uh, that go through that that checkpoint, um, and uh, it, it looks pretty cool with all of the the newfangled technology that they're using as part of this. Yeah, this is one of those articles that if you're a regular traveler, I recommend you read the article because we're going to just do a quick. You know summation of it, but it, but there's a lot of good facts in here. First, first of all, there's going to be three different sections to the west. So there's West One, which is kind of your your typical non pre non status travelers, kind of equivalent to what we used to do on that south side, right? And then there's West Two, which is your priority borders, but with not with clear. This is people who are you know first class or you know other things that make you priority. There's a, there's this new reservation system called Den Res, yeah. 
that you can that you can get like a reservation for a time to go through security and that that goes to two D west three that's where people with with pre and clear will want to go uh, it looks like it's going to be faster and easier like they, they said that across all three of these you don't have to take liquids and laptops out of your bags anymore like amazing right that's a pretty big enhancement um and there, there's all kinds of other stuff they're going to be able to uh, they, it sounds like double the number of people who go through this per hour per lane once this is a, uh, once this is up to speed. But even immediately, it's like a like a thirty percent increase or something for for speed per lane. So anyway, pretty cool stuff. I'm excited about this. Yeah, um, of course the south checkpoint is still open. Um, they are working on the east side security, which will be similar to the west side, uh, but that's going to be a few more years still. And until that is done, the south will remain open for. Uh, non non pre-check passengers as well. It, and it sounds like even after they close South, the South may rise again due to the need to have uh, something close to people who get off the A-line train. Uh, the, apparently uh, that the South is where the train comes into and it makes sense that people don't have to walk all the way to the North to, to go through security. Um, one other thing just to mention is that through this change, as the North security is closing, the bridge security is closed. You can no longer walk through to, to the a the A gates to go through security, uh, I think as of now, that's the way I read yeah. it. Yeah, I believe so, because uh, you're going to be coming out of the West security kind of right at the entrance to the uh, to that bridge. So I think they had to close that uh, as part of the new configuration. So, yeah, kind of kind of sad for that, um, for those people that like walking across the the uh, the A bridge. But, you know, uh, change is progress. Right. Good stuff. All right. Uh, jumping into our next story. One of the things that I've enjoyed most about doing this podcast for the last over seven years now, seven years this month, Alex, this is it, uh, February. That's, that's the month. Hey, how about that? How about that? Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Uh, um, one of the things I've enjoyed most is getting to really know the tech scene a little bit better. Like I've, I've always, well, for quite a while, I've been pretty plugged in with the security scene, but not so much on the rest of the tech scene. And this is, this has been a fun way to learn. Uh, so it's fun to call out a couple of, we have a couple articles this week that, that hit into that. Um, there's a, a local company called Lightship Energy that makes um, electric RVs. Um, so they are headquartered, kind of dual headquartered in, in San Francisco and in Boulder. And they just closed a, a round of funding for $34 million to help use to create their first wave of electric trailers, the Lightship L1. Yes, uh, it does sound pretty cool. Um, I think it was interesting to me, Rob, that uh, they call themselves an RV company, but they're making trailers. I don't normally think of of RVs, um, when I think of trailers, I think of you know things that actually you can drive on their own. So I'm I don't know if I just don't know the definition of an of an RV or if uh, you know maybe well, there's it's a nuance here, Alex. That this particular trailer has the ability to propel itself. I don't think oh. you can drive it itself, but it has you know it has a really big battery packs and it's solar powered. It has a bunch of solar panels on it. Um, so. It has the ability when you're driving that you don't actually need to use additional energy from the towing vehicle to drive it. So maybe there's some kind of a rule that if it's propelling itself, it's a vehicle. I don't know the rules either, and I'm not willing to look it up. So I'm just yeah. going to go with that. Uh, maybe some uh, some fan out there, some listener will be able to to tell us what the difference is and whether this actually qualifies as an RV or not. But uh, Sam, Sam Massiello is a pretty big RV guy. True. He might he might have an opinion for us. Doug Williams also maybe. Uh, maybe there you go. Yeah. Uh, also, um, so they are using a lot of this money that they raised to uh, to start up their operations in Broomfield, which is where they're putting the factory to build these. Uh, pretty cool. I think it's, uh, you know, next wave. I think everyone likes to be outdoors. And 
having an electric powered RV, completely electric powered, um, as you mentioned, that can that can move itself also, I think is uh, next generation. Cool to see these being made. Yeah, a couple of things interesting. Like I am, I'm not an RV person. I think the idea sounds cool, but I don't know where. I don't want to put it somewhere. And I'm yeah, there's lots of reasons I'm not an RV person. But this is this is kind of cool. This is tempting. You know, they these things sleep two to four people, so they're not huge, um, but they they're, they're beautiful. If you like, look at the pictures. Like you know, lots of windows, very airy. Um, they can they can provide off grid. Um, power for multiple days on their own. And they're, I, I know that like RVs can be very expensive. These things are starting at 125,000. So certainly not cheap, but I think that's, that's pretty affordable for the the space that they're playing in. They're not, they're not coming in crazy high. Yeah. It, I mean, that is, it, it's not as cheap as you could get a, um, a regular trailer for, but obviously there's a lot more features and functionality to this than a, a you know, regular kind of pop-up trailer or something like that, but yeah. pretty cool. Well, good, good stuff. All right, uh, moving on to our next article. Another bit of a sad story here. Um, there was an announcement recently that uh, the well-known Boulder VC firm Foundry um, is going to to sort of cease operations. Um, they've, uh, in 2022, I believe, uh, they started a new fund and they announced that this is going to be their last fund. They're not going to do any additional funds after this. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's, it's definitely a bittersweet, but it's kind of like getting a, cancer, a fatal cancer diagnosis that says, Hey, you've only got 10 more years to live. You're like, huh? Like, right. how do I, how do I do it? Cause they, they say that they're, they're going to go for at least another decade to, to go through this fund. So they, this is not a, Hey, we're closing up shop right now. This is not, things are going poorly. What they make it really clear that when they started this fund, the intention was not to create a generational VC. It was a place for the four founders to work together and to create something cool. And when the four founders were no longer up for doing it anymore, that they would they would close up shop. And that's exactly what this is announcing. Yeah, but I think to your point, Rob, um, you know, once you make an investment, um, you're not done, right? The, it takes a, a long time. So, you know, they're still invested in many companies and there'll be a, a long time before those companies uh, go public or purchased or, you know, whatever happens to get uh, the finality of their venture funding um, out of there. Um, and, you know, with this last fund, they're still going to have, uh, you know, a number of companies that they invest in with the the money that's still out there. Yeah. So we, we still have another decade to go, but, you know, as, as just a, a little bit of a preview, you know, you know, this is a, a massive thing for Colorado to have had Foundry Group come here. I'd say that they are a, they are the primary reason that Colorado became a, a place for startups and a place for startup funding. They, they really drove that industry. Um, now at this point we have an industry that's strong enough that them leaving is not gonna not not gonna kill it, but but it, it is it is a big thing, and and I'm sure as as we get closer to them actually shutting their doors, we'll we'll talk more about that and appreciate the difference they've made for Colorado. So Rob, you're saying in ten years we're still gonna be doing this podcast? Um, maybe whoever takes over for us can bring us back on to talk about our 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 opinions on that particular story. There you I go. did just as a reminder for anyone who hasn't listened to it. I did interview Brad Feld, one of the one of the founders of a founder group, and he's that's a, a pretty early podcast of ours, uh, and he's just an amazing human. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to the next story. Uh, speaking of startups, uh, we have a, a Colorado Inno story talking about the four Colorado software startups to watch in 2024. Yeah. Usually, when we go through these lists, I'm always looking for any security focused startups. Uh, if there's not security, you know, security adjacent, I think none of the the four 
software startups on this list are really security focused, but they're they're pretty cool. Um, and this is just a, a, a reminder that there's cool stuff going on in town that you guys can help out with. Uh, I'll highlight one of them. There's a company called Carepool, which is a uh, uh, kind of a, an Uber slash Lyft type thing, but specifically for helping people get to medical appointments. So, you know, you can imagine that there are a lot more requirements if you're taking someone who who can't drive themselves to a to a doctor's appointment. So so the the vetting that they have to go through and making sure that the cars are going to be accessible and you know the right fit for the people looking for the rides. Um, that's what Carepool is solving, and they're headquartered here, uh, getting started with uh, with with a real mission in place. They uh, looks like they did about three million dollars in revenue a couple of years ago, and they doubled their revenue last year. So 2022 was 3 million. They doubled last year. So they're growing. Uh, looks like there might be a, a real need that they're serving. Yeah, pretty cool. Uh, one that I want to highlight is one called Chamba. Um, I think as people know, there there's a large immigrant influx into the US and into Denver, um, especially from uh, Mexico and from Venezuela. And it's often hard for those immigrants to find work and so uh, what Chamba has done is they have uh, set up a an app that helps connect them, those folks that are looking for work, um, with jobs in the hospitality industry, which we know uh, there's been a big shortage in the, the hospitality industry since COVID and, um, you know, really hard to get people back into that kind of work. So uh, one of the things that, that Chamba does is, you know, they're essentially the employer of the immigrants and they handle all the paperwork. Uh, they handle all the payroll and that sort of thing. And then um, those uh, they match them up with places where uh, there there's work that needs to be done. And so I think it's a win-win on both sides. Good stuff. All right. Jumping over to our next story. The There's some news here that the National Cybersecurity Center, which is headquartered just down in Colorado Springs, has joined the Space ISAC. And, and, and the space, you know, we, we're familiar with like the FS ISAC and multi-states ISAC. They're, they're, the space ISAC is a relatively new creation, as you can imagine, uh, helping with intelligence and, and analysis, analysis gathering for the space industry. Well, NCC has already been partnering with them to provide information, and now they are officially part of the ISAC to give cybersecurity intelligence and, and really to, just to help bring some more secu- security knowledge to that industry. Yeah, I'd say this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. You know, the Space ISAC is hosted out of the NCC down in Colorado Springs. They've been partnering for a while. Uh, so, you know, for the next step for NCC to officially join as part of the Space ISAC makes sense. Pretty cool. Uh, all right, uh, next story. Um, jumping into the security-specific stories for this month, um, we have a blog from Coalfire talking about mastering AI risks using the NIST AI risk management framework core. Um, Alex, I would love you to talk about this one. I'm having a little bit of an issue getting the article, my notes up on the article uh, right now. Uh, all right, uh, I can do that. Um, basically, uh, you know, with the proliferation of AI, um, enable, being able to understand the risks associated with that is important. Um, NIST came out with an, uh, a risk management framework for AI and uh, it has four core components. Um, this should sound familiar with other sort of risk management frameworks, but govern, map, measure, and manage. And so this is really talking about those uh, four components and how you might use them to uh, help think about your risks associated with uh, with AI. Um, also, surpri- not surprisingly, um, Coalfire has a, a service that can help you to, uh, you know, use this framework if you're not familiar with it. 
Yeah, it looks like they they created their own. You know, how do you implement this this framework um, step by step process that they'll they'll walk you through? So in, in addition to just using that process, they they all they have their own model as well. And you know, I think that they, the other thing they call out here is that it's it's really about awareness of this set of risks. And you know, it's not like a one time let's go fix it. It's a you know, let's make some awareness. Let's make sure that that people are thinking about these types of risks that AI exposes us to. Exactly. All right. Our, our next one, we have a blog post from our friends over at Ping Identity around what is device trust. I, I think I've seen I've seen a lot of positive movement on device trust over the last couple of years. It hasn't reached you know zero trust or uh, or some other buzzword status, which is great. But it I, I think it's really important if, if you're not thinking about what device trust means and 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 how you how you allow access in your environment based on the device that that you're probably not really implementing zero trust yet. Uh, so I'd say that the ping blog here, you know, it's not in depth. It's, this is certainly not like your, your red canary, you know, deep dive here, but it's a nice overview of what is device trust. What are the things you need to think about and how, how might you want to use this in your environment? Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, all right. Uh, moving on to our next story. Uh, this is a red canary blog talking about Kubernetes security. Uh, this is a, a good technical deep dive into Kubernetes. So if you're not super familiar with Kubernetes, it gives you a good overview uh, of the different parts of Kubernetes and then talks about, you know, sort of the threat models around and the possible threats to each uh, of those particular uh, pieces of Kubernetes. Yeah, I think that this, if you've been one of those people who hears people talk about Kubernetes and think, oh my goodness, just stay silent so they don't know you don't know what you're talking about. Just read this article, and at the end of it, you're going to be like, oh, okay, I, I understand how those pieces work together. I understand where the security risks might be. Uh, you could think that, you know, hey, this is the management plane where I need to be looking for different types of attacks than what I look at over here in, inside the nodes. Anyway, good article. Uh, as always, we appreciate the folks at Red Canary making us a little bit smarter. Uh, and that was actually our last story, but we do have one other announcement. Uh, the call for papers for B-Sides Boulder is open. So if you uh, have an interest in speaking and would like to speak at B-Sides Boulder, we'll have the link in the show notes and you can check it out and sign up. Yeah, and the so B-Sides Boulder will be June 14th. Um, and the registration for that is not yet open, but the CFP is open. So go, I, I suspect that if you get picked to talk that you don't have to worry about registering. You can probably just get in. That would make sense. All right, let's jump over into events. A real quick reminder, we have a calendar of events and I'd say it was getting a little bit lean as you got to the new year, but all of a sudden everyone has flushed out their, their first half schedule. So there's a bunch of events coming here in the next few months. All right, our first event on February 9th, ISACA Denver is doing a technical training, uh, Alteryx Exploration, a beginner workshop. So uh, on, sorry. On the 14th, um, if you if you want to have your sweetie join you for some security events or you don't have a sweetie and you just want some people to hang out with, there's a couple things going on. ISSA Denver has their February meetings with their DTC meeting over lunch and their downtown meeting downtown. Um, and then we'll have the, uh, sorry, downtown over dinner. Uh, and then also on the 14th, the Let's Talk Software Security Group is going to be talking about, are we defending against the biggest threats to software? That'll be That'll be virtual. All right. On the 15th, ISACA Denver is doing a February joint chapter meeting with the IIA. On the 20th, CSA Colorado has a CICD workload security session with Orca Security. 
On the 22nd, ISSA Denver's Privacy SIG is meeting. On the 24th, ISSA Colorado Springs has one of their Saturday mini seminars in the morning. Uh, and then, of course, on the 25th, we already mentioned the Colorado Equal Security Gives Back event. Um, again, you'll see the uh, the link to sign up for that, both on the, the web for on our event calendar and in the show notes for this podcast. On the 27th, ISSA Colorado Springs has their February meeting, an introduction to zero trust with Enterprise Linux. I'm curious about that. Nice. And finally, ISSA Colorado Springs on the 29th is doing a mentoring mixer and log wars. Um, we have, so that's the 29th. On the 28th, we also have one from ISS, ISC Squared Pikes Peak. They're doing their February meeting on the 28th. Oh, apologies. I missed one. Yeah, no worries. All right. Jumping over to jobs. Um, I'm hiring a VP of GRC over at PAX 8. I'm looking for someone who has run GRC for an enterprise technology company with a global scale. One password is looking for a director of security operations. Inspirado is hiring a director of cybersecurity operations. Sage Hospitality Group is looking for an information security manager. Newmont Mining is hiring a senior operational technology cybersecurity analyst. Uh, U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement is looking for an information technology specialist. Interesting that ICE is hiring a, a, a security person here in town. It's specifically focused on security. Yeah. This next one, I was kind of hoping you'd get this next one, Alex, because I don't know how to say this word. I'm going to go with Clavio. Clavio? That's how I'd uh, say it. Clavio is hiring a senior security trust and compliance analyst, GRC analyst. It's kind of a long title, but GRC analyst. Datadog is hiring a business continuity and disaster recovery governance analyst. Wow. Salesforce is hiring a security governance risk and compliance lead slash manager on security IEM. Yeah, what do you think IEM is, Rob? Um, something engineering management. I don't yeah, know. Maybe. I don't know. Identity uh, engineering? Hmm? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Okay. Uh, and then finally, Bank of America is hiring a manual ethical hacker. So no tools there. You got to do it all manually. Yeah. No Google, nothing. Uh, we're making that up. We have no idea what they have to do. All right. Well, that is it for the news. Alex, we do have an interview this week. Thank you very much to Debbie Blythe, who sat down and interviewed Merlin Namath. We've, you know, you and I have known Merlin for a long time, a long time friend of the show. Uh, Merlin has had a, a rich career from, uh, I met him when he was over at Wells Fargo. He went over to, to help run security for uh, sports authority before they went bankrupt. And um, I remember him going over to Red Robin after that and regroup. And, and I know he's, he, oh, he Tenable, has spent some time at, at Tenable as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm sure he's had some interesting stories to share with Debbie and I'm looking forward to hearing them. Yeah, me too. Should be good. All right. We'll talk to you again soon next month. Thanks, Rob. This is Artie Wolkowski, CISO at Dish Network. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security, the podcast for Colorado security professionals by Colorado security professionals. Hello, my name is Debbie Blythe, and I am an executive strategist with CrowdStrike, and I am also the former CISO of the state of Colorado. And I am joined today by Merlin Namath, who is a local cybersecurity leader here in Colorado. And Merlin and I have known each other for many years, so I thought it would be really fun to interview Merlin today for this Colorado Equal Security podcast that we have actually both enjoyed since its inception. 
So Merlin, thank you for being here. I want to hear a little bit about your background and how you got into security. Yeah, thanks, Debbie. I really appreciate uh, you uh, suggesting that we do this. Uh, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. And um, as Debbie alluded to, that uh, we know we're pretty sure that we met each other early on, and and we think we may know how we how we met, but uh, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think we we know for sure. So <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's quite interesting. But uh, um, yeah, so um, you know how I got in, um, you know, technology. So um, I. I am of, I guess, of the vintage. Um, I guess that's what we say when we're old. Um, mm -hmm. That uh, I'm of the vintage that uh, most of us uh, um, got in the field without um, having a computer science degree. Um, mm -hmm. My undergrad degree is in uh, psychology, and I always had an interest in uh, in computers. And after I took my so my one and only uh, computer class I actually had in college was. Um, basically learning how to use different applications. So this was learning how to use <clears throat> mail um, on Unix, uh, WordPerfect for DOS, um, Quattro Pro and Paradox. It was, uh, yeah. So that's wow. my only formal computer class I've had. <laughs> okay. Um, well, not that you've dated yourself or anything. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and, and how, how many people listening to this are probably, you know, having to Google what DOS is. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I'm okay with that. <laughs> um so um, after I took that that course, I, I got a work study job and the, the campus a computer lab, and so it was uh, you know just helping people um, be able to navigate uh, WordPerfect and and you know things like that as well as um, it was the network was running uh, Novell I believe it was three one one, and uh, so I got to know P console um, very well um, when. Uh, print jobs were stuck or someone needed a print job canceled. And, and so I, um, I did that, um, you know, it's work study job. And then I also did that, uh, throughout the summer then too. I, I ended up uh, staying, uh, um, I went to Nebraska Wesleyan university in, in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I, I, um, after my first summer, um, going home, I'm like, yeah, I really want to stay, stay, um, at college, with my friends. And so I, I, I stayed on campus and I, I worked on campus and, um, during the summer as well. Um, after I graduated there, I, uh, I went to grad school at uh, Washington University in uh, St. Louis. And I, again, keeping with the theme of not getting any technology degrees, I uh, uh, got my first master's degree in uh, social work. And that summer, right before I started, the social work department had gotten wired up for Ethernet. And, you know, everybody, you know, all the professors and, and you know, admin people and everything, um, it was all very new to them. They didn't really know what to do. Um, I got connected with this uh, with this lady. Um, her name was Karen, who was assigned to like support um, everybody in the building, and she had very little um, experience in understanding with computers. So, um, so it worked out really well. I ended up uh, uh, working for her as work study and uh, um, helped the professors, and and then I also um, uh, learned a lot more um, about uh, computing um, beyond that. So I, I worked for the social work department for a year, and then I, I ended up working for the campus NOC after that. So I, I learned a lot of, uh, of you know, local area networking, wide area networking. Um, for those, and Debbie, I'm not sure if you would uh, be familiar with this or not. I don't think we've talked about this before. Um, there was a mirror, you remember the mirror sites where you could like go download uh, uh, different software and, you know, you'd set mm -hmm. it up on your 14.4 or 28.8 modem and you'd like yeah. set it up and download all night and then, um, you know, come back in the morning and see you downloaded, you know, four megs of, of something. And <laughs> um, 
so that's how you know like some of the games like duke nukem uh, back in the day and um geez i remember some of the other ones um so one of the mirror sites was actually hosted by uh, washington university called Wu archive uh, wu oh, archive yeah. and uh, it was a pretty popular site and i remember just being in awe of like i actually saw it um it, it was like running on a declan uh unix box um but uh yeah wow. back in the day yeah <laughs> the good old days the good old days. Yeah. So then after I graduated, um, I ended up uh, deciding I really liked technology and, and wanted to make a career of it. So I um, had had a desire since high school to move to Colorado. Um, I've been skiing since I was like 12 and um, enjoy the mountains and and decided I was just going to move to Denver. So um, after I graduated, I moved here and didn't have a job or anything. I was just like, wow. I'm just going to move here. Yeah. That's adventurous. It was adventurous. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I ended up getting a job soon after I moved here working for IBM. That was my first uh, um, real uh, tech, you know, job in technology after uh, after college. And uh, I did phone support for laser printers. Um, so, oh, wow. yeah. Um, and so we were like, and so working out of the Boulder office, we were the tier two support and the tier one was uh, out of RTP in uh, uh, North Carolina. And so if, if you know, when things and, and there's like a script, if, if things got to a certain point, then the, the, the tier one would hand off to the tier two. And so I, I, I did different things like, you know, helping customers with like networking issues of, of getting the printers connected, um, you know, print driver issues. Um, hardware issues. Um, I even had a toolkit where I'd work with uh, the, the field. Um, I think they call them customer engineer CEs, I think. And, uh, and they would like have run into some difficulties, like taking apart a printer to fix something. And so I pull a printer into my cubicle and I would like get out my tools and I'd step it through with them and take apart printers. So um, it was, it was, it was quite interesting um, work. Fun. And then after IBM, I, I went to work for uh, um, Access Graphics in Boulder. So people who've been uh, in call in the Denver area for for some time uh, will definitely know of Access Graphics. Uh, there's a lot of people who who had worked there and then you know went on to different things in their careers. And oh. when I was working there, I was, I was doing phone support, and it was supporting. So Access Graphics, for those who don't know. <clears throat> uh, back in that, th those days was a huge distributor and they were mostly um, focused on Sun Microsystems. So um, I took a lot of Solaris classes and became uh, quite versed. And that's how Debbie and I think we might measure was, yeah. was after I um, left there, Access Graphics, I went to work for a reseller and I think I installed some some Sun Solaris systems for uh, where she was working at the time. Probably so. Yeah, that's what we're thinking. That's what we're thinking. And, uh, and so we also supported other technologies as well. And they, they sent me to a Checkpoint uh, Firewall. So this is Checkpoint Firewall 1 version 4.0 class. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yes. I, I took that <laughs> class too, actually. <laughs> and I got certified. Yeah. Um, wow. But, uh, yeah, after I took that class, I was like, wow, I really like this. And and that's really um, where I, I shifted my career to focus more on security. And uh, wow. so I, I owe it to Checkpoint um, yeah. that uh, I really became interested in it. What year do you think that was? That would have been 1999. Okay. I, okay. I, I took that. Yeah. That was about the year I think that I got interested in it too. Oh my gosh. And it's like, and, and when I went to work for um, you know, reseller, I, I ended up, uh, one of the projects I, I went on was to do an upgrade. I think it was from 4.0 to 4.1. 
And it was the only firewall, so there's no HA. And it was running on a Sun Ultra 5. Oh. And in the middle of the upgrade, I ran out of disk space. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. So that was a, that was quite a tense moment of trying to uh -huh. figure out. Fortunately, the, the admin who uh, was responsible for that, so he was there. And between the two of us, we were able to figure out how to back it out and to, uh, um, you know, finish the upgrade. But uh, wow. yeah, and, and that was actually for a, a local government agency. So it was going to take down that whole agency. <laughs> yeah, um, this was probably but, midnight, though, or something like that, right? <laughs> I think we went on a weekend or something like okay, that, yeah, but uh, yeah. yeah, it was, oh um, it was quite tense. And, nice. um, but I think experiences like that really helps you to, you know, develop a, a good sense of how to troubleshoot things. And also when things go awry like that, how to back out of, of, of changes. Um, yeah. <clears throat> another experience that I had was uh, when I worked for access graphics, I once I became um, skilled enough um, I, I did, uh, I was on the on-call rotation for, for weekend support. And I remember distinctly getting this call from this uh, customer who had, and, and I remember this so vividly, he had seven systems and seven uh, Sun systems. And he said, I had to take all the systems down because we had some upgrades happening to our electrical um, feed. And now that that's all done, none of my systems will boot. And <laughs> so... <laughs> So that was like a, oh crap moment. And then, <laughs> then I started thinking about it and, and I had taken like one of the best classes I've ever taken in my career was this, was this troubleshooting class that, that, that son um, gave. And I took it at the Broomfield campus and the first like, I think two days was, um, was classroom instruction. And the remaining three days was the instructor would go around the room and he would, uh, um, break systems and you would have to figure out what was broken and, and fix it. And mm. so that, that class really helped me. And so yeah. when I like thought, I'm like, well, why, why, what would cause that? And then after thinking about it, I'm like, I'm like, are you using NFS? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, you probably have what, you know, what we're called as hard mounts. And so yeah. it's, it's dependent. So he had cross mounts um, in there. And so, um, so, so meaning for, for those who aren't a, uh, um, don't don't um, are, aren't as versed with uh, NFS. Uh, hard mount is that the system won't continue uh, booting until it actually is able to mount that uh, remote uh, um, uh, you know directory or, or, or file. And so oftentimes it's, it's recommended to use soft mounts because the system will keep booting and it'll keep trying to mount that. But uh, he had hard mounts in there, and so so you know once I kind of figured that out after after asking some questions, it ended up turning out to be like a fun issue to solve where. We, we booted up a few of the systems in uh, what's called single user mode. So we could go in and, and, and edit the, the um, what was that called? NFS.conf? Was that the name of the file? Oh, that sounds right. Yeah. Sounds right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, this is like dating me. Oh. file, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then just, you know, took out those hard mounts and able to get a few systems up oh. and then the rest of the systems booted up. Um, so, yeah. but, you know uh, what I find kind of funny about that story is that he – upgraded all his systems and then decided to see if they would boot like wouldn't you upgrade one and then boot it up and see if it works good before you upgrade the rest <laughs> well actually what he does he, he had taken them down and it was uh, it was their electrical feed coming into their their data center it was upgraded and so oh, um so no. he had taken all systems down but i don't think he'd ever been in a situation before where he had all the systems had down them and, all down and had to yeah. start them all at once. Okay. That makes sense. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But, but those, sure those, were, <laughs> those were, those were fun days though, for sure. 
Yeah. I'm sure he was panicking and he was glad he had someone to call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm glad I had, uh, had some knowledge to figure out how to, how to sort through that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, um, once you decided, like, I really want to pursue career insecurity, what were some of the roles that you, I mean, how did, how did you go about pursuing that? Yeah, I just uh, um, targeted like security specific roles. And, and it was interesting because I remember having like um, a role at an organization. And I think it was one of my very first roles I had where I was just a pure, you know, I think my title was like security analyst or something like that. And I'm kind of like, what do I do? <laughs> um, <laughs> because, you know, security back then was much simpler than it is now. And, yeah. and you know, I, I, I joke around that, that uh, you know, early in my career, it was, uh, um, you know, antivirus and uh, running free snort and firewall. And that was about it. And uh, it's so much more complicated. So I, yeah. I, I'm definitely so thankful for, you know, getting in my career and being of the age that I am that my career um, really progressed as, as the technology and the capabilities uh, progressed as well. Um, so I, I knew at some point that I wanted to be a leader, um, uh, but I, I felt like to be an effective leader that I really needed to understand the, the, the different technical roles in security. And so I just really focused on, on that. Um, it is interesting, though, that uh, my first security program I built, um, I did with the title of Senior Systems Engineer. So I was responsible for security and the Unix uh, environment, and, and I built a security yeah. program. So I learned early on of how difficult it is to even get um, buy-in for a, a password policy. Yeah, not not very uncommon back in the days that you're describing where, you know, there really wasn't such a title as a CISO, um, or at least it wasn't mainstream. And so you had folks as senior systems engineer um, or manager of information security who were leading and building the program. So not too surprising. And yeah, not a lot of support back in those days either. Yeah, and, and it was also... Um, you probably recall this as well, where it's referred to as IT security. Yes, absolutely. And 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 back then it really was. I mean, it was focused on just the IT systems. It didn't uh, expand to information security um, yeah. until until some years later. Very true. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I was um, curious if you'd tell us a little bit about the work that you did at Lockheed. I can talk about some, okay. <laughs> <laughs> not all of it. Um, I can say that going through uh, a polygraph is is not fun. No. Um, oh my God. Um, I, I did I did have a top secret SEI clearance uh, when I was there and had to go through a poly, and uh, that was it was pretty nerve wracking um, because you're supposed to answer the questions basically without moving because um, the the sensors they have um, strapped to you like sense any body movement and so that might indicate that you're lying and so and you're trying to get your breathing right and uh and the the um the the, the guy conducting the polygraph just told me he's like you can shake your head yes or no <laughs> <I'm> like okay <laughs> oh my that. gosh <laughs> um, so uh but yeah it was uh, um i had wanted um i had targeted lockheed martin for um a few years, I really wanted to go work there. And I was so happy when I, I, I ended up uh, uh, landing a job there. And I had um, taken a SANS class, uh, the the GCFA, the, the forensics class. And I think I'd also, I'd also at that point had the, the GCIH, which is the incident handling class. And uh, Lockheed was looking for um, someone with some forensics uh, um, experience to uh, 
come work. Um, and initially what I did was to uh, support internal investigations. So this was um, investigating uh, em employees. Um, I can talk about that. That, that stuff, I just can't talk about the classified stuff. Right. <laughs> so, so when I, and I was mostly support, so I was working for a specific business unit and I was supporting basically one um, ethics officer uh, with her investigations. And and keep in mind, so I, 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 it's just a, a funny story that um, she's like old enough to be my mom. So she had kids like my age. And most of those investigations were pornography. And of so, of course, I'm, I'm pulling like, um, you know, evidence office systems um, and, you know, sending her like these pornographic pictures and everything like that. <laughs> and, she's, and she's cracking jokes about them. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> So, um, but, but, and, and then, then one time I, I, I remember uh, cracking a joke back at her one, one time saying, it's like, it's like, well, I'm just like everybody else. It's like, I want to look at pornography at work. So it's like, you just have to get a job where it's okay. Oh <laughs> and God. you don't lose your job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I remember when investigations consisted almost entirely of investigating employees looking at porn. Yes. <laughs> and, and when I took that job, I thought it was going to be like the 20 something year olds that, that were doing that. It's like, Oh no, it was like the 40 and 50 year old people that were doing it. And it was, it was pretty sad that I, I saw people lose like, you know, 20 and 30 year careers um, because they were doing that at work. Um, yeah. And so, policies. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and, and quite frankly, from a technology standpoint, um, it wasn't that challenging of work. It wasn't really that interesting um, doing it. I mean, you know, with every job I, I learned something. Um, so I, I definitely learned some, some good skills with that, but uh, um, eventually um, I think it's about two years into that job where um, the, at, at the time each business unit had their own cert and they end up uh, collapsing that into one corporate level cert. And so when I became a part of that, then that's when I got into like the, the really interesting investigations with, uh, um, with APT. And, uh, and at the time it was only, so um, Lucky Martin, Boeing, CIC, all, all those that do defense stuff is called the defense industrial base. And so at the time, and this was like, I worked there from 2005 to 2010. And during that time, um, only a defense industrial base and three lever agencies even knew about APT. Um, outside of that, nobody um, in commercial even knew, um, had even heard the term. And I think it might have been classified at that point even that, that we couldn't even say anything and became unclassified uh, um, a, a few years later. And uh, so I, I, I could definitely say, I can't, can't say any details of it, but I, I, I did do uh forensics on a system when uh, there was an active uh, um, intruder on the system. So mm -hmm. that was uh, quite interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And then, well, then, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just, um, so one of the reasons that I asked this question is because I was curious to hear about your work on the cyber kill chain model. Yeah. So um, the, the, the team I worked on, uh, the, the, the corporate level cert, uh, we we developed the, the cyber kill chain. It was a team effort, so I'm not yeah. you know, taking credit for it. Like, oh, I did all this or whatever. <laughs> and and a few people from our team then uh, um, were the published authors for it. But it was a it was a team effort to develop that. So it was That's it was cool. really neat to to work on that and then to see how um, you know some some I mean I I come across you know even yet 
still today come across the references for first cyber kill chain. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. I think, you know, the MITRE attack model, I think is, you know, it, it's more pertinent today. Um, but cyber kill chain was, was very pertinent uh, um, back in those days because there wasn't anything and it, it really helped people understand, uh, you know, how, how, how things move along, uh, you know, from uh, yeah. um, scanning systems to, uh, to compromise. Well, I think it was super innovative because it was the first time that people really looked at the um, the full attack and what happens in an attack and realized that if you could detect it sooner and fracture that kill chain, that you could stop the attack. And so it was it was a way of sort of getting your mind around, is there something I can do to, you know, to stop an attacker, to prevent an mm -hmm. attack from being successful. So I think it was super innovative. And that's why I asked the question. I wanted to hear about it. <laughs> yeah. And then also part of that was we had a very extensive uh, threat intelligence program um, at Lockheed. And yeah. so, um, and, and we had people who were, that's all that they were doing um, What was, was threat intelligence. Um, and and not, not, not that all, you know, meaning that wasn't, uh, um, you know, a lot of work. Um, it was a lot of work, but that was what they were doing exclusively. Yeah. And it was their focus. It, yeah. yeah, it was their focus. And we had it down to where we knew at specific times of year that, um, you know, when we would see activity from certain uh, threat actors. And so, you know, to your point, we were then able to anticipate that and look for th those kind of style of attacks that they are known for and, uh, you know, try to be in front of that. Um, I, you know, I, I can say we were, um, I learned a lot. I mean, I, I went through many incidents. We had some some large ones that, that took months and months to investigate. And uh, um, I, uh, I, got, I got pretty decent with uh, Encase. Uh, we had Encase Enterprise uh, installed and uh, um, learned, you know, and I went to a lot of training on that. Um, <clears throat> and it was interesting, again, you know, just, um, you know, given my age and, and when I got into security, just seeing how things have just really progressed um because when i um was at lockheed they were um i went to like a, a conference and they were talking about like oh well you know we're we're working on doing some uh, memory forensics but uh you know there's really no structure to memory we're trying to figure that out and then years later then there's like tools that, that can do memory forensics so it's <clears throat> it's neat to see that the progression of that how how some very smart people have been able to um figure some of those things out yeah fascinating um, so I, um, when I introduced you earlier, um, I made reference to the fact that you are a security leader in the community. So I'm curious, how did you make the transition from, you know, very technical, very uh, hands-on and deep into the technical aspect of it to leadership? Tell me about your leadership roles. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, I, I really wanted to get into leadership. And I was applying for some leadership roles and, and this is why I was still at Lockheed and I just wasn't really having too much luck. And then, I, so then what I did, and, and this is a strategy that I recommend to others who are, you know, trying to make that uh, um, jump into leadership from, uh, from hands-on technical is I started reviewing job descriptions and a common theme that I saw in the job descriptions was project experience. And I'm like, why well, have project experience? Because one of the projects I actually co-led was to build out the, the SOC here in Denver for Lockheed Martin. And it was a, uh, I don't know, three and a half million dollar project back then. And uh, and so I had a lot of project management experience. And so 
I actually went and got my PMP and which is also not a, a very fun exam. Um, <laughs> and just like the CISSP, it's very similar to CISSP. And uh, I was so glad to, to pass it and no longer have to study for that and try uh, to pass yeah. it. <laughs> and so it was like, um, you know, it's a few months after that, that I ended up landing my, my, my first uh, leadership role. Now, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, just because I had um, my PMP that, that, you know, got me the leadership role. I, I think it helped. Um, you know, I, 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 I know that there's a debate in our, um, you know, amongst the security um, um, professionals of like, you know, are certifications necessary or not. I think certifications by themselves aren't really that useful, but the, it's the knowledge that you gain um, from those certifications. And then having the certifications just a demonstration that you studied a lot to be able to pass the exam to, and then, you know, hopefully still retain uh, um, some, some knowledge from that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I end up, uh, um, getting a, a program manager role on a government contract. Um, and I had 16 direct reports as wow. a brand new manager. <laughs> wow. This is your like your first manager role and you have 16 direct reports. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I also had four bosses because oh, I, 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 I worked for a, a joint venture company, um, that was formed by four other companies and every quarter, the CEO of one of those four companies was my boss and was, was overseeing this, this contract. Wow. And, and of course, you know, them, you know, the, the four of them being CEOs of their own companies, uh, of course they don't agree on everything, you know, that the other people want to do. And so I was like caught in the middle with my 16 direct reports. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> so you and I know a lot of the same people um, and we seem to run into a lot of run in, I should say, a lot of the same circles. Um, so when did you start getting active in like networking? Yeah, I got active in networking. Um, I think it's about 2000. 15, 2016, around there. Yeah. And, and by that point, I'd, I'd run a few uh, security programs. Um, you know, I've, I've, um, I, I've actually, you know, over the course of my career, I've, I've led uh, five different security programs, um, two of them with the CISO title. Uh, most of them I've, I've had to either build from scratch or rebuild. Uh, and so I, I have a lot of experience with, uh, with building up uh, security programs. And, uh, so it's actually, um, I know a lot of people in the community know Laz and, uh, yeah. and, um, as Debbie and I do, and, uh, and he like really encouraged me to, uh, to start networking. And I'm like, Man, I don't need networking. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know. I kind of felt the same way initially too, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's been great, um, to, to know so many people because, um, as a security leader, I, I, I get into so many different situations where I'm like, man, I don't know what to do. You know, right. I am not quite sure how to navigate this. And it's so nice that um, I have a number of people that are quick email, text, phone call um, away to bounce idea off of. And mm -hmm. then, you know, you're really hosed when um, all the people I reach out to be like, I don't know what I would do either. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really bad day. <laughs> That's a really bad day. <laughs> um but it, it's really nice because it, it is a hard job and security mm -hmm. keeps changing so rapidly that it's just so hard to know, um, you know, keep up on all, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think, um, I think it was SANS, um, wasn't it that, that developed the, the CISO mind map? 
Oh yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. And, and, and when you look at that, it's like, holy cow, there's a lot you know, going on in Cisco's brain to try to try to navigate everything. And, and it's, it's, it's very difficult to do. And, you know, some people are, are really good at, at some things. Um, um, like I consider myself pretty, still pretty good at uh, incident response yeah. um, and leadership. Um, I've, I've taken a lot of training on, on leadership. And I think also my, my, my two uh, uh, degrees in social sciences, I think also helps with that as well. Um, whereas, you know, Debbie, I know that, you know, you're, you're strong and, um, uh, calling in National Guard when uh, everything <laughs> <laughs> breaks loose at the state. <laughs> you got to have friends on speed dial, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so so with the networking, you know, I've um, definitely have some, some you know, great lifelong friends that, that I've made in the industry. It, it's always fun to go RSA. Um, my, uh, and I've been going to RSA for, for quite a few years now. And my rule that I have is that I, I won't make any lunch dates, breakfast dates, whatever, with anybody who who's local um, with Denver until my calendar's all filled up with people who are located elsewhere in the U.S. because that's my only opportunity that I get to see those people in person. And um, but I, I still you know see see local people. Debbie and I have like uh, um, and and Rock, you know, we've all uh, yeah. gone around and created all sorts of chaos at RSA together. And yeah. um, so so that's that, that that's fun to do. But yeah, it's, it's just neat to like you know get together with with folks and, and see them and. You know, with, with that networking, um, that also, um, and I, I can't remember who pushed, I, I feel like somebody pushed me into this because I absolutely hated like public speaking and, you know, to, to even do an interview like this, um, yeah. you know, pr- prior to, I don't know, 2016, 2015, um, I would never even consider doing anything like this. Wow. And, uh. And I, I feel like somebody pushed me into it and I don't know who, um, yeah. but uh, it was, it was a great thing to, to, to do. Um, my early presentations were rough. Um, you know, I'm not the most eloquent speaker and um, you know, some people are really good at that. I am not, I, um, but I, I, I do try to make sure that my presentations are, are very organized and you know, some of my, some of my presentations are pretty rough and I'd be pretty embarrassed if I heard any recordings of those. And, yeah, and I, I feel like it. I've, <laughs> yeah, but it's, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, um, I, I really enjoy doing it. Um, I end up uh, giving a few presentations a year, uh, get interviewed on podcasts like this. And, yeah. and so uh, it's nice to do that. Um, one, one of my um, best presentations and it was my very first um, that to be accepted at the RSA conference was, was on incident response. And, uh, oh. and I, I remember I was, I was working at sports authority at the time and I get this call from uh, the cord, you know, one of the cord- main coordinators at RSA. And she's like, she's like, um, I remember she's, she's saying, she's like, Oh, I used to like live in Denver and it's nice to be able to call a 303 number. And, um, and then, you know, she introduced her who she was and she's like, yeah, we, we saw your submission for instant response. And instead of it being a, you know, 50 minute presentation, would you be interested in, in doing a learning lab, which was a two hour presentation? Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, sure. It's like, cause I, I was, I was wanting to, you know, yeah. get accepted at RSA and RSA is very difficult to, to get accepted yeah. to. And, uh, and so I had given that presentation, um, at RMISC and what's interesting is, is I stumbled across, um, this is just kind of one of those aha moments I had where, I, I was accepted to present at RMISC and I saw I was the last speaking slot of the day. And I was just oh. like, Oh, it's <laughs> like, 
nobody wants to sit through another PowerPoint presentation at four o'clock of RMISC. <laughs> and, and back then there was a one day conference and, right. uh, and then the light bulb went on and I'm like, wait, you don't teach instant response by talking to people. You do it by, by doing it. Yeah, um, you learn true. by doing it. And so I turned that presentation into a, uh, basically a, a tabletop exercise with the audience. That's and great. yeah, so, so I did RMISC and then, uh, you know, I did that RSA, um, you know, for the learning lab. I, I asked a, a good friend of mine that, um, who I worked with at Lockheed Martin together, uh, uh, Bob Huber, who is the CISO at uh, Tenable. Um, I asked him to co-present with me. And so we did that uh, learning lab and, um, and several people attended. I don't remember, Debbie, if you, uh, if you were able to attend that one or not. I was not. No, no. Yeah. I, I know there's some people who were there. Laz yeah. was there and okay. a few people. And, yeah. and so it was, it was really cool. So. Um, and, and that, that ended up, uh, leading, um, to me getting accepted then to give that same presentation at the RSA conference in Singapore, um, which is way cool. Um, Amazing. Yeah. That's great. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to think about, um, we're talking about 25 years approximately that you've been in security, um, so I would say, you know, what, what are you still passionate about? Like what still drives you, uh, to continue doing security? <laughs> That's kind of a low question. Like what drives you that? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Keep, keep shutting your, your fingers in the car door. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've been doing it a long time and I, I just really enjoy it. Um, I enjoy the challenge. Um, you know, I, I like that. I always have to keep learning. I, I do consider myself a, a lifelong learner. Um, I, I really enjoy giving presentations. Um, I've been fortunate and blessed that uh, I've been able to present at five different RSA conferences and uh, wow. RMISC several times and other conferences. And um, and even like the summer, someone reached, or this past summer, someone reached out to me to keynote the, the FutureCon conference in Denver, um, which was really cool. That's the first time Very I'd cool. been a keynote. Yeah. And so I, I, I really enjoy that because I, I feel like over the 25 years, I've, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot of what not to do. And so, um, you know, I, I kind of think of like the demotivator posters. There's like my favorite one. It's it's a picture of the sinking ship. Uh, do, do you know which one I'm talking about? Uh-huh. And it says maybe it's something to the effect of like maybe the purpose of your life is to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so. Yeah, with me out there presenting at, at conferences and things of, of things that I've like mistakes I've made. It's like hopefully that's a a, a, um, a warning then to others to you know don't make the same mistakes. Um, and I think we can all learn from each other. And um, and then also um, I really like leadership. I, I do like leading people. Um, that motivates me. Um, I was able in my last uh, company uh, mentor um, a young lady who uh, I just identify as having a lot of potential. And I mentored her for a year and she ended up uh, landing her first uh, management role. And so I was, I was so pleased and so excited for her. And uh, she's um, an, an amazing, you know, she's amazing in her job. And <clears throat> someday she's going to have, she's going to be a CISO or a CIO or a CTO. She's just uh, has, has that potential. And it's just through mentoring her and helping her to gain confidence in herself that uh, she stepped out and like, yeah, I really yeah. want to be a, a, a leader. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, you, um, you really are a servant leader 
And I really, I think, got a view into that when one of the presentations that I saw you present on was about sports authority closing down and how you really took a lot of time to think about how to prepare your people and how to take care of your people through that. Um, I think that was a, um, you know, that was a, a big event that um, I think, you know, folks had the privilege of learning from as well, because you presented on that at, I don't know if it was RMISC or at um, RSA or both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I did give that presentation at both. And yeah. uh, it, it, w- it was a lot of fun to give that presentation because, oh my gosh, we ran into all sorts of stuff like yeah. um, the, um, like the IPS um, technology we had, the, the maintenance expired on that. So we weren't getting any new signatures for it. And I'm like, oh, and what I was worried about was the opportunistic attackers coming after us, be like, oh, sports story is going out of business. So you're not paying attention to any attacks going on. You're just like focused on shutting down the company. And so I, I was concerned about that. And, uh, but we were able to, uh, um, fortunately before the bankruptcy, um, we'd actually upgraded the firewalls and checkpoint firewalls. And uh, they, um, the, the first year um, include the licensing include all the features. And so we just turned on IPS on the firewall. So that way we got the updated signatures. Um, uh, and yeah, but yeah, it was, it was interesting. I, I still keep in touch with, uh, with a number of the people that I worked with at S4 story, cause it was a, uh, it's a real defining moment in all of yeah. our careers. Um, and when, when that was happening, I was like, um, wow, how, how am I going to navigate this? And so I like did some searching and like, has anybody given a presentation on how to keep a company secure that's going out of business? And I didn't find anything. Yeah. And, and then I'm like, oh, I need to start taking notes here because I'm the one who needs to give that presentation. Right. right. That's fascinating. I'm sure that there are a lot of people who were in that situation that wish they'd had some guidance on that. <laughs> I, I actually had uh, a few people reach out to me after that presentation and, you know, um, ask me some questions because they're like, yeah, I think my company's going to start going through that. And so mm-hmm. they, they wanted to, you know, pick my brain on, on, on what they need to um, keep in mind. Yeah. Interesting. So let's shift gears just a little bit. What's something interesting about you that most people wouldn't know about? So this was definitely one of my, still one of my top 10 life experiences um, is uh, many, many years ago. So this is in uh, year 2000 um, after the world survived uh, Y2K (laughs) (laughs) that um, my brother-in-law was in the Navy and he he retired a few years ago. He was, he was career Navy and he was a nuclear engineer on, on a Trident submarine. So, the Trident submarine is is the biggest uh, class of submarines that the U.S. Navy has. They carry up to, I think it's like 24 nuclear missiles. I mean, th- these are just massive wow. machines. Wow. And uh, so he was able to take me on what's called a Tiger Cruise. And so I got to go on. The, um, he was serving on the USS Ohio, which is the, the flagship. They often re- refer to that class um, of submarines as the Ohio class. And so this is the flagship uh, um, submarine, um, the USS Ohio. And I got to go on there for two days and one night uh, with him um, on the Tiger Cruise. Wow. And it, it was such a fascinating experience to see, you know, all the technology and um, I, was, I was able to see everything in the front one third of the, of the, they, they call it a boat, um, the one, front one third of the boat. 
um, the rear two thirds is a nuclear reactor and, and we weren't allowed to go there. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, we can go everywhere else. And so it was, it was neat to like, see what the sonar people do. And they're like, oh yeah, we can identify like all these different, uh, um, you know, submarines or, or whatever, just by sound. And, uh, wow. and then, um, yeah, and they, they did some uh, different demonstrations for us. The one is called angles and dangles. And so they'll do this like when they're, um, when they first go underway, um, and uh so they'll, they'll you know once they're in deep water they'll um they'll start at just a few degrees and they'll like um um ascend and then they'll um level off and then they'll descend and they keep working up to i don't remember how many degrees but it's 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 quite steep and really what it is it's it's a shakedown to to see if anything is loose and needs to be tied down before they're they're you know fully underway that's amazing yeah, that's an experience that I think most people have not experienced. We'll never experience. <laughs> it, it was way cool, and, and and one of the stories that they they were saying on the on on the submarine was that uh, they, they would oftentimes have different dignitaries and other people come on board, uh, you know, maybe for a few hours or um, you know, not not for necessarily a, a tiger cruise like I was on, and uh, they they said story about uh, Bill Gates uh, was actually on the Ohio uh, one time because um, the Ohio was ba based out of. Um, out of uh, Bangor, Washington. So on the west side of Puget Sound uh, from Seattle is, is where it was uh, based out of. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they said that uh, um, they're talking about the computers on board. And the Ohio, I think it was commissioned in like 1979 or, or somewhere around there. And so he was like asking about the computers that, that control, um, you know, targeting and, and firing the missiles. And they had 32K of memory. And they said that Bill Gates was just <laughs> laughing hysterically over that and he was oh my gosh <laughs> um so i know you love to travel and i know that you took a really amazing trip and i want to hear a little bit about that so um what would you say was the favorite trip that you took thus far yeah so it's something my wife and i really like to do um we, we've traveled a, a number of places and um my favorite so far is uh, we went to uh, Nepal and we went there to uh, um, um, trek on that. They call it the EBC, which is a uh, Everest base camp um, um, yeah. trail. And it was, it was amazing um, to um, just be in like this, you know, surrounded by these huge mountains. Um, so we, we, um, ended up not making it to base camp. Um, we act, ha had some altitude sickness uh, issues. And so we had to turn around, but we, we made it up to 14,600 feet. And wow. there's a picture of my wife and I where, um, we're, we're standing there at 14.6 and you see these peaks just towering over us behind us. And mm -hmm. they're like, you know, well over 20,000 feet. Um, so there's like Lotzi and, um, and, a Emma Dablam, um, I think we're in the background. And, uh, wow. and so, um, yeah, so it's disappointing that we didn't make it to base camp, but we ended up, uh, um, chartering a helicopter when we were there and we're able to fly over base camp. Um, and, uh, and we saw Everest, we were, um, the, so, so we went with a trekking company and there was, um, several Sherpa guides, um, that, that were part of that. And, uh, when I showed them the pictures of like how high we were with a the helicopter, they're like, Oh, you were high. I think they said it was as high as like camp three or four. Um, so wow. we were pretty high. Um, but it, it was neat to see Everest in, in person. And, um, I highly encourage people who have a desire to, you know, go on a, on a big adventure like that and go hiking to do it. Um, the Nepalese people are amazing. I still keep in touch with uh, two of the Sherpa guides that we had. 
um, on that trip and, and several people, um, um, who are, um, I guess, you know, the tourists, you know, paying, paying people to, to, to go on the, on the trip. Um, you know, people from like Australia, Canada, us, um, UK, um, that were on that trip. And so it was a very bonding experience to, to just fail experience something like that, but it was just, yeah, it was amazing. That's so cool. Now, one of the things that I remember you telling me about was um, your wife is a teacher and her students back home were very interested in your journey. So um, tell us a little bit about how, how did you keep them um, informed? Yeah, so we um, we buy a Garmin InReach uh, device. So it's um, it's an SOS device. We we do a lot of hiking in Colorado, and so we we take that with us all the time because some of the places we go in, in Colorado, um, we might see one other person um, all day, mm-hmm. and and so what what it does is it's it's uh, communicates uh, with satellites, and we have to pay like a monthly subscription uh, for that, and um, you know like like in Colorado, like if one of us were to get injured or something like that, you can uh, basically send text messages through satellite um, to be able to reach uh, Garmin has a, has a call center. And so they'll, they'll summon um, emergency response, um, you know, here in Colorado search and rescue SAR uh, to, to come rescue you and, and take care of, of you. And so, so that's one aspect of it, but also another aspect is that you can, um, and, and we paid for like the, the full blown, like um, a subscription where we could send as unlimited tech to, text messages uh, through that with uh, friends and family, um, back home when we we're on that trip. Yeah. And another thing we were able to do is um, <clears throat> with our subscription is that we have like our own portal uh, with Garmin. And so we were able to update that portal with different messages. And so the, the substitute uh, who was teaching my wife's um, classes, um, she would get on there every day with the students so they could see, they could see where we're at because, you know, it's, it's tracking us because, you know, I had it on all the time. So it's tracking us via GPS. And so they could see where we're at. And then we were like sending messages of, you know, what we were doing and, and how the trip was going. So it was just really cool where we're literally on, on the other side, halfway, you know, around the world yeah. because it's about 12 hour time difference. And the reason why I say about a 12 hour time difference, because, India and Nepal, their, their, their time is a little bit different than here. So it's, um, I think that Nepal is like 11 hours and 45 minutes um, <laughs> ahead of us or something like that. It's, it, it's like a 15 minute difference. It's, 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 it's kind of interesting how, how that is, but, uh, but to literally be on the other side of the world and have the technology where we can communicate with, with yeah. anyone, um, was, was just amazing. I thought it was super cool because I just thought it was fascinating that you were at Everest and um, I was one of those that was sort of following the journey too. So I just thought your use of technology was awesome to keep people back home, sort of it feel like they were on your journey with you. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a lot of fun to do that. Yeah. So, okay. One last topic and then we, we have to close, but um, I think something else that's very interesting is the volunteer work that you do. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I currently volunteer with an organization called Team Rubicon. Um, I actually, and Debbie, I don't know if you knew this or not, um, how I um, actually found out about Team Rubicon. Do you know that story? No, uh-uh. Um, the co-founder of uh, Team Rubicon actually gave a keynote at RSA a few years ago. Oh my goodness, I did not yeah. know. And so that's how I found out about him. And so I started volunteering with him a, a little over a year ago. And so what, what Team Rubicon is, is it's an organization that was started by veterans. Um, and it was started by this guy, um, 
um, Jake Wood, he was a primary person who started it along with a few other people. And they were um, retired. Uh, I think all of them were retired Marines. And um, when they, they, they saw like the situation in Haiti, like unfolding, this was like when the, the hurricane hit Haiti. Was it a hurricane or earthquake? I can't remember which now. It might be an earthquake. Um, and uh, they're like, we got to go do something. We have we have all these skills and, and we can go help people. And that's how Team Rubicon was was born. So now it's a organization of, I think somewhere around 120,000 uh, volunteers and it's, it is um, focused on veterans. Um, but they also allow, um, they, they call, um, those of us who are not veterans, badass civilians. <laughs> and so that is me. And, and there, and what's interesting is they, um, I had never thought about this before, but when people, um, join the military, they do that because they want to serve. And then they leave the military, but they still have a desire to serve. And Team Rubicon gives them that outlet to be able to serve. And so the service with Team Rubicon is responding to disasters, um, mostly. Oh. And, you know, they do a few other things, too. But that's that's the primary mission of the organization. And so I have, um, I've, you know, since I've been involved with them for just a little over a year, I've been focused a lot on training. Um, I, I grew up on a farm and in Western Nebraska. So I, I have, you know, some good mechanical, um, type skills like that. And, uh, team Rubicon's like, yeah, we don't care. You're going to be trained our way. Um, uh, which, which I can appreciate. Um, I've, I've actually prior to team Rubicon had gone on a, a few, uh, disaster relief, um, trips. Um, I, I went on a trip, um, oh, actually a couple trips to, to help after hurricane Katrina hit, uh, um, you know, it really hit uh, Mississippi and, and Louisiana. And I went on a couple trips to help with that. And then uh, for those of you who have been in Colorado for a while, you know, we had the flooding in, in 2013 yeah. Yeah. and I, I got connected with a, a, um, a family in uh, Boulder that had mudslide go through their, um, through their property. And so I went and I, I ran a skid steer and a, and a mini excavator to help uh, clear away all the mud and everything. Cause wow. you know, I grew up on a farm. It's like, I can, I can, you know, still pretty much figure out how to operate any piece of equipment. And so um, last summer I went to Oregon um, for 10 days with Team Rubicon. Uh, we were um, set up a Boy Scout camp uh, up there and it was, they called it a DTC, uh, which is a disaster training camp. And mm -hmm. I've had learned all these, these acronyms because they use a lot of military acronyms. And so I know that FOB is Ford Operating Base, um, which they, they set up at every disaster. That's where, uh, where the, the command and control staff um, um, operate out of. And, uh, so, so I went there to, to, uh, take training and get certified in heavy equipment. And because of my farm background and experience, uh, operating, uh, equipment on other disasters, um, they, they advanced me to level, um, one. And so I was there to get certified on, on level two. So, um, which I did pass, um, and so that means I'm, I'm an independent operator, so I can go on any disaster with Team Rubicon and I can um, operate the, um, and it's, it's mostly a, um, a compact uh, track loader CTLs. Um, mm -hmm. So, so they're the um, skid steers with, with tracks on them uh, is basically what they are. And uh, so I can do anything with uh, hauling it, uh, performing maintenance on operating it in, in a safe manner that uh, Team Rubicon feels comfortable with. So. So wow. I do that. And then uh, I also, um, in Colorado, we have a quite extensive a chainsaw program. And so I've gone through uh, some chainsaw training and I've been on several fire mitigation progress, uh, projects around uh, Colorado where we go in and we help own homeowners where we, you know, remove uh, uh, brush or trees or, or, or whatever. And so, wow. um, 
so I'm, I'm still at the beginning level of, of, of chainsaw certification. Um, um, growing up in Nebraska, we didn't have very many trees, so I don't have a lot of chainsaw <laughs> experience coming into this. So, uh, so I'm still working on that, but, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I just encourage everybody like, like find something that you're passionate about and, you know, get, get yourself away from security because, you know, security is a, it, it's a tough job and it's a stressful job and it's, it's nice to have a, an, another outlet. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's very good advice. <laughs> Well, Merlin, it's been so fun talking with you. You know, we, our time went by so fast and I, I could definitely dig into more things, but um, we are out of time, but thank you so much for being the guest this week. And, um, and thanks again for sharing your time and your wisdom and your thoughts with us. Yeah. Thanks Debbie. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks uh, Alex and Rob. Appreciate uh, you uh, um, allowing people um, to interview others in the community and, and help you out. So it's been a lot of fun. Uh, um, yeah. Our conversation with Debbie today. So. Bye all. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.